Hi, and welcome back to part two of our two-parter Hot Takes episode. That's quite a mouthful. Now, if you haven't checked out episode one, it's probably available on the platform you're listening to this on. So go check that out. And if you have checked it out and have come here to enjoy part two, welcome back. I'm glad you could join us again. So this episode is going to be a lot more fun. It's going to be a lot more chaotic. There's going to be some very heated discussions. I would love to slap a heated debate tag on this, but I don't think we have enough characters to allow us to do that. But I'm going to stop babbling. Let's just get on with the show. And what exactly is your next hot take, Abhim? My second hot take is uh, is I don't quite like The Office. I've And believe you me, I have tried to get with it for multiple uh, sittings because my roommate happens to be a, a big fan of the series, so much so that every lunch and every dinner that we had during lockdown together, you would play an episode of the of the office. And after, and maybe halfway through each episode, I'd be like, dude, this is, can we please switch to something else? Maybe, I don't know, maybe I've always preferred the original more because I feel Ricky Gervais's original UK vision was, is a little out there. It's not for everyone. It's more bizarre. It's far more riskier. And this, I believe, is more, obviously condensed for an uh, for an american audience there are there are tropes and also there's that weird jump cut technique which has been done to death in during the later seasons i think that's more than any more than anything else that really gets on my nerves i'm all for jump cuts actually one of my favorite reviewers on youtube is uh he heavily uses jump cuts in his reviews and that's fine but not to the detriment of the of the scene the story taking place i just find each character completely irritating. I feel the humor is meant to be cringe inducing. It's not cringe funny. It's just cringe, cringe. And uh, to a to a point where I'm like, okay, I, I'd rather not watch this at all. I, maybe there is a target group for which this is like exceptionally hilarious. They enjoy uh, the hell out of it. It's just not for me. And that's completely fine. I mean, when you say it's it's for a target group, that's like most of the world. I think yeah. Dunder Mifflin, which is the subreddit on Reddit, is one of the biggest on the platform. So it's office by no means a niche show. It, it's mm. and like you said, right? The UK office is a lot more risky, and it's a lot more like there are. I've seen I've seen the a few episodes. There are parts of the episode, or there are jokes which are. They're not even funny. They're just cringe. It's it's meant to make you uncomfortable. It's yeah. a very different experience. And obviously, when you bring it to the US, they want to broad base it and make it more accessible. That that shit won't fly in the US. Yeah. So I still I I agree with the what's happening. Nothing. A bottle fell. Sorry. Metal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. I agree with the the part where you're saying you know the the way the camera behaves in the in the show. I don't like it either beat the mm-hmm. jump cuts and even the sudden zooms you have suddenly the camera zooming in on some it feels oh. very gimmicky mm. yeah it, it's very annoying and uh, the reason I like the office I don't like the office sorry what I meant is the reason I don't dislike the office is not because of the show but because of uh, because it gave Michael Shore a platform to start working and I really love what the Shure verse as they call it has grown mm-hmm. into from there, he's gone to Parks and Rec, he's gone to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and he's gone to The Good Place. And I feel each show has been better than, I wouldn't say better, it's it's more mature than the other one. It's He's ironing out his flaws with every new outing. Mm-hmm. So like I said, right, it's for that, that I like the, uh, that I am glad that The Office existed. Per se, I, even I don't find The Office very interesting. 
and it's all uh, parts of it are very run by num- uh, what do i uh, what do you say tick the boxes run by numbers sort of thing you have a love story which you know it, it plays out over two three seasons it's will they won't they i mean friends mm. did it i'm sure a yeah. lot of shows earlier before that did it mm. so and i think steve carell carries the show a lot because of his mannerisms and being michael scott the way mm-hmm. he's portrayed the his portrayal of michael scott the way it is mm-hmm. and he leaves at the end of season 6 there are three mm-hmm. more seasons inexplicably for some reason mm-hmm. i watched till season 6 and i watched a few episodes of season 7 i was just i just wasn't feeling it so i stopped after that mm-hmm. i don't think i'm going to watch i regularly on and off when i feel bummed or i want to pick me up i regularly on and off watch show episodes of parks and rec i watch episodes of Brooklyn Nine is my favorite sitcom. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know how many times I've watched yes. it. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, Ditto for Good Place. Did Good Place underneath the humor? There is the Good Place is way more philosophical than Bojack or Rick and Morty or any of them, right? Good Place is the most philosophical show in the garb of of a comedy. Mm-hmm. So again, great, great uh, episode. But I never rewatch Office. I just don't feel the need to. I don't feel like it. So yeah, I. I I don't I don't dis, I disagree with you on the importance of the office maybe but I don't disagree with you that the fact that I don't like it as much either okay I I have luckily enough just very over the last few months been watching a lot of the office I've not seen it before that at all um the thing is I don't generally watch a lot of sitcoms I did not I didn't get the hype around friends you know yeah whenever you're supposed to be hyped about it spectacularly uh, boring Uh, the only show that I, the only American sitcom that has blown me over is Brooklyn Nine Nine. Me and my brother watched it back to back from season one to five because I can't watch six and seven. Like season six and seven, I I just can't watch them. It's not that they're that bad, but one to five was so perfect for me. Anyway, uh, about the office, see, the thing is, I don't watch the show. It's comfort food. Uh, that's the only way I, it makes sense to me because uh, since. Uh, when you had a reasonably long day when you're in the middle of work and you just want like 20 minutes off i do find myself i open my youtube and because i watch so much of it it's often there on my feed i i rewatch a section or i do something i don't give it that much seriousness um i for me it's just a lot of likability going on i i i i forget his name the guy from the hangover the dentist right hand Ed Helms. Ed Helms. I enjoy. I like watching Ed Helms. I like watching uh, uh, John Krasinski. I, and I've always liked John Krasinski. Again, since a long time. I, I don't even remember why I like him. But what did I see him in? It sort of go, it, it like forces me to smile, and I'd be embarrassed at myself. And sometimes I'm like, Adam, this is stupid. But I smile, mm-hmm. and I don't have to think about it. I don't have to engage with it, and I can just. So it's a nice five-minute snack that way. And as okay. five-minute snacks. It's fine. I mean, for me, it's fine. I mean, I, I can't imagine treating it with the seriousness that uh, the UK office, on the other hand, mm. that is uncomfortable. <laughs> See, I mean, if you want to watch it as a show, I watched the UK office a long time back because I had this British Library membership when they had these DVDs. So I ended up watching like the UK office, Alan Partridge, uh, a lot of British stuff, even before the American series had come out. and when i saw it with a lot of time on my hands as somebody who enjoys tv shows and this and that i liked it it was something very refreshing in its awkwardness in its uh, uh it, it in in a way it was one of those things that expanded my idea of what british humor is because for me till then it was just a lot of yes minister and yes prime minister 
not know a lot about this, but I don't think the office's appeal is because it's a sensational. It's not essentially a movie experience where you watch something at a stretch and you judge it on its own terms. I imagine most people watch The Office or even Friends the same way that I do, which is just to watch a five-minute clip, laugh at it, and you want something that is extremely predictable. Yeah, you know, you want to know. I'm expecting this. I'm expecting, you know, a couple of quick zoom-ins to Jim Harper looking at the camera and shake. <laughs> I'm expecting mm. Kevin to do something dumb, but whatever. And I'm expecting Shrewd to say something. So. and i get all of that i'm like in 5 minutes i'm going to get all of those it's completely predictable that's why i watch it that's why i imagine most pictures so mm-hmm. that's it. i know a lot of lot of uh, the office fandom really uh, i mean portrays dwight shrewd as one of the greatest characters on in tv comedy for me my favorite my what i feel who i feel is the funniest character in the office is that old what's his name creed that guy is like the most unpredictable character i i have seen on screen you don't know what he's going to do next i am so curious about what his life is like man like <laughs> but yeah i think by and large very vanilla show also, does, does the job it's supposed to disclaimer having never worked in an office i don't know what it would actually you know <laughs> seem like to have done that to have had that i mean i don't I most offices work like that either way so i i think you're okay yeah yeah <laughs> but cool um yes. we'll quickly move on to sid's point number 2 right. so Go for it. um this was actually going to be rohit's dicaprio point initially but i just wanted to bring the bollywood into it so my point is that um bollywood needs a lot more masala uh or masala movies you know or mass movies as i think in the south they are called and uh, i i read constantly uh and i hear a lot of hate about how bollywood is mindless or it is you know this is not what we need etc 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 i don't think that is bollywood's problem is that it does masala or mindless movies it's that it doesn't do them well or hasn't been doing them well lately um or in another way it's forgotten how to do a real masala movie you know and right now all the really really good um masala movie when done right is its own genre if that's how you pronounce that word i always get confused um and you know a masala movie is one that that just doesn't take off the technicalities so a good masala movie can actually be extremely accomplished technically but it also has that sort of uh, element of you know the 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 hero with a thousand faces what was mm-hmm. that novel uh, joseph campbell you can say it has it has a mellow, it has a certain overarching narrative structure that is you talking about the hero's journey the the hero's journey joseph campbell. campbell i'm not specifically <laughs> talking just about that but i remember that that's actually a, a very that that gives it a certain academic legitimacy you know that the hero's journey is essentially the journey of every masala and the hero's journey is not a structure you will see in a, a very frequently in indie films or masala film by 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 its definition deals with that it tends to do a lot of things you know it's it gets it is supposed to hit you at a primal level uh, get the audience going roused up but the only way it can do that is by connecting to a lot of genuine uh, connecting to the world that it thinks the audience comes from and sometimes it's not just pandering to the audience it's going to connect to them in a way that they maybe they didn't know they need to be connected uh, but when you look at the popular high budget um, you know a movies through indian history you had the raj kapoor films which sort of paralleled the whole socialist nehruvian era where he is this small town innocent guy 
the, you know, uh, he, he uh, of course, it's, he very famously copied uh, Charlie Chaplin a lot. But the, the narrative arc within the large framework of Joseph Campbell was, uh, you know, there that he's this innocent small town guy. He comes, he, he enters the big bad world of the city, of the capitalism, of business. And then he gets, uh, he, he loses his soul and then he eventually finds it and he goes back. So, uh, and then that moved on somehow um, for a while that worked and that then eventually as people got jaded with the initial ideals that started losing its sheen. Like Indian films have kind of paralleled whatever's been happening in society at large and they've been able to sort of, uh, they've acted as a collective catharsis for their audience, which is why we love our cinema so much. Masala movies have a certain manner in which they need to be done and when they are done beautifully, amazingly well, they, they, they can be like a punch to the gut. You know, and I don't think they necessarily have to be dumb. Uh, and of late, the only person in the last five to ten years who I think has even tried to do that and occasionally succeeded not consistently is Salman Khan. Because when he does a dabang, um, for mm. me, that's the kind of movie I didn't particularly enjoy as, you know, my tastes go. But when I see it, it, it strikes me on a level where I'm like, this this is not a Black Friday. Because my see, my personal preference would always be if I'm watching a police procedural, I'm thinking Black Friday. It doesn't make sense to me. But at the same time, I'm willing to admit, okay, there's something interesting about it. Second thing is, I was in uh, I was in UP, uh, you know, once. And uh, there was this guy like, you know, those banyan trees where below which the barber just sort of cuts your hair. Right. And, like. Mm-hmm. So I, I decided to get my haircut from one of those dudes and he was doing it and he starts talking and he tells me how the police picked up his brother and he's a, a minority member. So he tells me how the police picked up his brother and like I was jailed for three months. And suddenly he's like, you know, something like, um, he talked about how much he loved Dabang because watching Salman mm-hmm. Khan, these were not his words, but to him watching Salman Khan as the guy who now suddenly is taking on that system and fighting it out is cathartic. It's it's mm-hmm. reinforcement of this belief through a very dark time that there will somehow, there can be, you know, there, there'll be some kind of, there'll be some light you can say, but also, even if you don't believe it, even if you don't intellectually agree with, okay, this your brain doesn't say that this is what's going to happen. Something that you've been thinking about, wanting to see happen, you see it happen and at least it it's can wish fulfillment on screen. Mm. Yeah. And no, it's not just that, it's also the fact that, okay, if if the even if there's the very remote possibility that a real life police officer can ever be Chulbul Pandey or probably should not be Chulbul Pandey, the fact that the Salman Khan and the filmmakers and whoever came up with that story can sit there and connect to the frustrations of say uh, this this guy in UP, connect to that idea that this guy wants to see you know uh, the, the the system being thrashed. He doesn't care about. Uh, and it's it's it depends. I mean, the setting changes. In a UP, it's taken for granted that a hero can be corrupt. A Singham is not corrupt because Maharashtra police has a slightly higher reputation. But Singham, again, a great masala movie, you know. You don't try to watch it. In, but I think one of the part of the problem is we've sort of, Bollywood is moving away from that. And that is something Bollywood was very good at once upon a point of time. Something Bollywood maybe needs to do. Because the more you see the films that have been hits in the last... Um, few years let's take what like 2019 you have a the which were the good films in that year you know you have gully boy which is in in a way it's a masala you, it's not a masala movie exactly it's it's a kind of a very arch 
um, mm-hmm. oh look, we can connect to the streets. But people watching Gully Boy aren't people in the streets. They are people who have a well-off, comfortable lives who think that that is what is going to happen in the streets. So we like watching mm-hmm. rap mm-hmm. battles happening on the streets of Mumbai. You know, uh, or you have a, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, like even like a Super Thirty, for example. I think what we've been seeing, one change we've seen is that a lot of the so-called masala template has shifted over to middle-class movies. Or movies yeah, that agree. connect. Three Idiots for me is a pure masala movie. You know, three. Mm. if anyone says it talks about what actually engineering is or what the system is, I'm like, no. no. What it does is it, it appeals to all the engineers who ever suffered engineering and, and it gives them a showcase of whatever, uh, of things they might want to see in their fantasies. Engineering is nihilism. <laughs> yes, I see a lot of uh, angry engineers over here. I yeah. wouldn't say that. I mean, I have over time come to respect it uh, as a profession and uh, whatever. You have something like Article 15, one of the most celebrated movies of that year. Again, something that is very clearly aimed at an educated audience who's going to be very angry. Mm-hmm. See, the point is when you really have the person suffering there, uh, I wouldn't say suffering for somebody who's at part of his daily life. Seeing seeing it on screen is not very exciting. You know, if day to day I have to, you are you the kind of subjects, the characters in Article 15, the actual people who live the lives of those characters do not really want to go and watch Article 15. Mm-hmm. They want to go and watch mm-hmm. Kabak. Mm-hmm. So we've been seeing a lot of improvement in films, um, which are very clearly multiplex, you can say. Uh, I think there have been exceptions. I was pleasantly surprised by Bala, Ayushman Khurana, again, mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. like a very middle class premise, but is actually has a very nice uh, over structure about insecurities and covers a lot of ground. Uh, something like Kabir Singh, on the other hand, was unabashedly, unabashedly so in your face, you know, wannabe South Indian masala. And I think it reaped the rewards for it. You know, I, I don't know if I, I'm not talking about the agreeing with what the film suggests or mm-hmm. talk, or dissecting it. The middle class and particularly the kind of people write columns in newspapers hated it. You saw a lot of that coming in that Kabir Singh is this, oh my God, it is like a step back and it is retro. It probably is, but I think that was missing the point. The people who were supposed to watch Kabir Singh were not the kind of people who put their mind to what they see. It, it sort of tapped into maybe a kind of frustration it shouldn't have at a social level. Uh, it was a movie in many ways, I would say for incels of sort who want to imagine themselves. I don't agree with how it did it, but it, it, it fit the template of what masala movies usually do. Identifying social threads and frustrations, tapping into them, being very unapologetic and in your face and amping up everything to uh, level 11. That's not been happening in a good way recently. And the kind of debate and the kind of conversation that's been happening around Bollywood, the kind of, you know, hatred for the Khans and this and that is just made people even more scared to do that. Karan yeah. Johar, Abhi Khushi, Kabhi Gham. My God, that that scene, you know, these are movies as Abhin will attest that I never saw actually when they had come out or even when we were in school or these aren't the movies I enjoyed or watched. But for me, that, that, that scene of SRK's entrance... Uh, where he yeah. gets off from a private plane, walks into a helicopter. <laughs> now when I watch it as a 30-year-old almost, I'm like, I want to see more of this. You know, this this is <laughs> even about, uh, is it possible or not? It's just, it touches watching that family drama. It, you see, these are not characters, these are archetypes. So yeah. Amitabh Bachchan is the patriarch, he's the patriarch with the capital P. It's not about whether a real-life father figure can ever be like that. It's about... 
a patriarch clashing with you know the good son and the adopted son it's just those templates were so wonderful and i haven't seen even current who try to do something like that it's like the last time i heard of Huh? It's like it's like Jaya Bachchan has spider sense in the movie, except it's like a month sense or something. So, <laughs> exactly. where, but, yeah, so she can. You know, further to your point, I think uh, what a good masala movie does, uh, especially the movies of say eight to ten years ago, they mm-hmm. are they're very aware of the fact that they're exaggerating themes that they're picking on, yeah. and there's mm-hmm. a sort of wink to the audience that you know we know we're doing this, but you're in for the ride, might as well enjoy it. But a bad no, masala movie. But, a lot but, more of what we, huh. a lot more of what we see today is just they're not even acknowledging the audience. It's just it it treats its audiences really dumb. So Which, uh, that's what I feel. Why masala movies today don't work as well. I I agree. So there was uh, in two thousand eight. I'd say um two thousand eight was the revise. So obviously between two thousand nine to I'd say twenty eighteen. the 70s or the 80s rehash of films was was very prevalent right and in 2008 that's when tashan dropped and tashan is as oh. over the top yeah is as over the top and as overly dramatic as, yeah i have like no one got what he was trying to do yeah nobody <laughs> and tashan had it released 3 years later if they if they shot the exact film frame to frame and kept it in a can for 3 years and released it in 2011 it would have broken what at the time was a 100 crore record right that's kind of what uh, people were like that's what bo- producers were chasing they were chasing that mythical 100 crore number at, at the box office but it didn't tashan flopped and i think um generally what happened was in the early 2000s or let's say like in the 90s particularly there were there was a lot of sto- sto- they, the masala films existed you had roop ki rani choro ka raja you had but they all had a semblance of story you that was all of these movies yeah which was um koila pardesh which very like no, no, I mean, subhash gai yeah subhash gai kuch kuch hota hai of course yeah all yeah you had you had the masala part, but they, it wasn't like they all took themselves i wouldn't say very seriously but they there was they, they played it straight even though it, it was like a family drama you'd say okay you get you get like comedy you get drama you get like a uh, romance you get you basically hit five sections and that's that's the film that's what they package and sell and depending on how successful you got at hitting those five sectors and uh, accordingly it would um, i mean you would it would justify your your success at the box office because dil ka rishta came out which i have watched very recently oh uh, my and, god uh, <laughs> i watched what uh, a blast from the past yeah i watched dil ka rishta with uh, arjun rampal and ashar uh, rai it is wow it's as masala as it possibly gets my the whole my memory is gone yaadash kho gayi hai all that bullshit makes no sense no, but- उट 
for me i discovered the 90s retrospectively when i in 2010 so <laughs> i actually uh no but see i mean i think um, salman khan did bajrangi bhaijaan which for me is one of those movies that again changed my perception of how a film can be very different on paper from what you think is a good movie and yet work in a way for me bajrangi bhaijaan is for me the thing with salman khan is he doesn't show up most of the time and that includes a lot of his big budget films as well he's just not there uh, even in a tiger zinda hai he's just content to sort of you know <laughs> the bhai short opening scene but when there are occasions he does show up yeah and you see this goofy uh, you know not very smart person not pretending to be a smart person in your face with his emotions he's like this annoying kid who's always in your face but you can't be mad at because you get that he's just a kid uh whether that's for me bajrangi is literally that kind of a role but uh, even a prem ratan dhanpayo you know oh it's God, I... not aimed at an audience like us so we are going to find it very annoying but it goes all in and i i actually you know what i would love to discuss this but or dissect this rather i actually find that in the movies that i like especially the masala movies there is a literal difference at the at the level of the editing and the camera work that movies certain movies that are very confident about what they're trying to do are not afraid to shove the camera hold it on people's faces salman khan can cry his eyes out when he's actually trying to do it with like a full frame focus and when he's when he's in the mood he can actually sell the audience a lot of the so called cleverer actors don't try that you know if you look at the work of people who are not doing masala who are too afraid to do it arithik roshan rarely does that with the camera just hold unless it's to show off his features he would really do it to show off his tears he would really do it to show off anger or snort running down his nose or whatever except for um, maybe laksh laksh was a masala movie laksh was a good i love laksh because it's our miles of what but uh, laksh was a good movie um laksh for me is one of the only, one of the few reasons i respect farhan akhtar don two is the reason i don't uh, <laughs> and with his mtv unplugged performance of rock on songs uh, but um, but srk for example i think has sort of as a, as a actually a very smart person somebody who's very very in tune with the mood around him he sort of become embarrassed to do that kind of masala he did it in chennai express it paid dividends uh, yeah. he he has done it is is going all out for gone all out for it but rice was an example of him thinking i can do a masala action in the old zanjeer kind of frame but let me bring in rahul dholakia who's like you know this guy who made the parzania uh, gujarat right parzania Hmm. it didn't work it was primarily its problem was that it was trying to on the one hand also have the srk intros and the wolf whistling and it was also trying to be you Scarface. know be like oh no but i'm actually better than this i am not hmm. this movie that's all about wolf whistles look at me you can't it landed up nowhere uh, you know it, it's the same the same thing i think repeated to an extent with fan although with hmm. fan i would blame marketing a lot more because it yeah. sold it as a SRK. comedy when it's not it is a brilliant return to form of the psycho srk you know the, the srk i don't get romantic srk at all but srk who could stand in your face who could throw kajol off that ceiling i think that's a, actually a good actor that srk is the one you know he represents an intensity that brought him into the limelight that that reveals mm-hmm. something about who he is as a person and he might have toned it down and i don't i, I have no idea what he's doing in dlg i don't get details people who get dlg have told me that if you didn't see it when it came out you're not going to get it because this so but this srk so something like fan also it tried to go masala it tried to play to srk strength they tried to pull back and be very postmodern in many ways it hasn't worked completely 
Chakri mm-hmm. India on the other hand is a masala movie in my opinion. You know, Chakri is as masala as it gets. It's a low budget, low key masala. We are not doing those kind of stories very often now. What are we doing now? We are doing a lot of Netflix. We are doing a lot of Raat Akeli Hai. We are doing a mm-hmm. lot. In my opinion, way too much of. Uh, There is somebody who is doing good masala nowadays. If you guys have watched, uh, there's this guy. I mean, you guys must have heard of Tiagaraj and Kumararaja in Tamil film industry. Tamil, done, I was actually going to come to that. Aranya Kandam and Super Deluxe, amazing. Super Super Deluxe, yeah, yes. Don't forget anything. Dhanush is a masala actor par act excellence in the world. Karanan, you watch Karanan. You watch um, uh, or not? Dhanush, you watch Vikram, when I watch Vikram Veda. And what? But what surprises me is that I watch these movies out of fascination for movies. These movies have gained a lot of popularity among the regular Hindi crowd as well. Yeah, they're running constantly. You know, you can say that it's because the rights are cheap, but it's not just the cheap dub factor. It's that a large part of the Hindi audience also just misses that old, yeah. you know, hero. This is filling that stuff. void. Hmm. It's filling that void to a large extent. You in college environments, you know, I. we were in college in pesit and now i'm again with actually 1920 year olds doing law in both these environments these guys from uttarakhand guys from up talking about dude have you seen vip have you seen vikram veda those are the movies they talk about none of them actually talk about uh, most of most of the hindi films that are coming out because it's taken for granted that badhai ho dekhi hogi but badhai ho is for a certain padha likha kind of multiplex class mm-hmm. um you know a lot of ayushman khurana films are aimed at that a stri is something that i think actually was one of the most brilliant comedies but again bollywood seems to be actually getting smarter getting a little more niche taking a little more risks but it is forgetting what its main job is i mean i know i know what <laughs> its job is but it seems to be embarrassed about it and, and it makes sense because there's such a constant barrage of attack you know about oh bollywood is nonsense we want to see smart bollywood parodying making fun stuff like pretentious movie reviews has made it impossible has made people very very conscious about what they are doing so now they want to double check and make sure oh this is you're seeing a lot of really good technique but it doesn't serve the purpose i mean for me kabali you know i, I that opening <laughs> scene i love it when it's rajni okay so you shouldn't compare anyone to rajni khan when it comes to that mass effect but uh, in kabali you know he's told he's paroled and you just see his back Uh, you know, as he's exiting his jail cell, he walks out. Then he takes two steps back and puts one hand up. I don't know if you guys yeah. have seen it. He does a single yeah. hand lift, and you can just imagine the audience going mad about it. I'm like, that is not even Sarkar. Even Sarkar. Sarkar. Alji, we did that. Alji, we maybe went to the went way overboard with shoving the camera literally in people's faces. <laughs> no, but I think uh, Ag was the worst Aag. example of that. Ag, the camera is Ag is bad Aag. masala. That masala gives you. Alji's <laughs> career deserves its own one hour. You know, all the way yeah, from. Yeah. But yeah. I, what I mean is also masala is not just nonsense or or even self-acknowledging, uh, clever, wink, wink, nod, nod kind of sarcasm. Nayagan. one of the mm. you know a movie that's on in top 100 of greatest indian films is in many ways it is a masala movie nayagan's not an art film you watch nayagan it's got this tortured hero it's got the themes of injustice the hero fighting back it's got family drama it's it's and it's very in your face um, mm. mother india is a masala movie par excellence mm. you know so what i'm saying is that i'm maybe misusing the word masala also the word has gotten so many connotations now but very in your face filmmaking that goes up and straight up says what it wants to say without trying to hedge its bets without trying to be mm. too smart about it without trying to be like 
oh, you know, does it really matter? And Rick and Morty find the whole thing. Mm. Rick and Morty is the other end of the spectrum, but we have seen films pull back from the full glory of Bollywood, even mm. like a Lagan, to the level where they are now embarrassed about emotion. They're embarrassed about too much drama. They sort of, whenever they do it, they hedge it with a, you know, they, they sort of hedge their bets a little bit. By making it. I feel Masala is now exclusively belongs to three the three khans more or less i think salman khan has uh, autonomy over those kind of films because those films don't work with most other actors which is why they are realizing that at least studios are realizing that they can't afford mm-hmm. pump i mean they were, i'm not saying those movies are going to be made on insane budgets let's let's take a race the three races are complete bullshit but they've all made a lot of money the first two did not have Salman Khan. The third did, and the third third sold its entire charm on the basis that it's a Salman Khan film, right? Hmm. Any other act who's attempted to do it, just think about it. Shahrukh did Chennai Express was worked wonders for him. He did Dilwale hmm. soon after, and uh, yeah. for me, Shahrukh's performance in Dilwale actually was not there. You look at Dilwale, and it's Shahrukh just sort of holding himself back, and just he's just there. In Chennai, he throws all of himself at it. In Chennai Express, he's enjoying the goofiness too. And I think that makes a difference at some point. Okay. I mean, now moving from one end of the masala uh, movie, uh, masala spectrum to the, uh, to, end, to the other end of the spectrum. So my third um, and final argument is that I feel, I've thought about this a lot. And there have been, a, and I've read a lot of think pieces, a lot of articles about how it's probably the weakest of the franchise and uh, jumping back from Bollywood to Hollywood, obviously, I am talking about how part one of the Deathly Hallows is probably on par with Prisoner of Azkaban as the best Harry Potter film of the eight. Um, I saw this also on a Reddit thread. And for the first time, I've never seen any of anybody actually give that movie its props because it handles themes of, I mean, it basically handles three 17-year-old children who have no idea what they're up against. They have a fair idea of what they're up against with zero resources and riddles from a dead man. And they are thrust into a world that wants to kill them. Uh, They can't uh, choose to get any help because any help that they try to reach out to ends up getting murdered brutally. And while they're trying to figure out answers, they're they're put on this extremely intensive path. And which is why what I really liked about The Deathly Hallows is that even as a book, it brought three characters and there was a, and for the first time there was a lot of conflict between the three usually there's conflict between ron and harry and they're just uh and, it, and it's over something silly as him being trying to be the big guy but for the first time uh there was there were there was family involved there was just frustration anger jealousy a lot of themes that were explored in the book and very and brought very well into the film. Part one is a bit of a slow burner. I'm not a big fan of part two because it seems like one big climax, even though uh, repeated rewatchings has kind of softened that uh, that stance. I, I kind of feel that as good as Prison Azkaban was, it it kind of took the films in a different direction. It it made them mature a little bit. Um, Alfonso Cuaron gave, even from a visual standpoint, became a very attractive film. I kind of gave it its blue tinge. Um, it's, it, in my opinion, a horrible adaptation of the book, but great film nonetheless. And I think the closest I felt to feeling uh, feeling the same about another film in the franchise was possibly part one. I think part one of The Deathly Hallows is, uh, I mean, it's, it's given a lot less credit than it actually should be. I don't disagree with you. I also like uh, part one a lot. <laughs> mm. I think uh, it 
it suffers from the curse of the penultimate movie mm. which in any franchise the penultimate movie always bears the brunt of uh, anticipation i wouldn't say expectation because when you're watching any penultimate movie in any franchise it's like yeah you know what whatever whatever just get to the part that get to the mm. conclusion i want to see how this all plays out how it all ties together mm. so people don't have as much patience for a penultimate movie you you take any uh, franchise which is like four five movies long you you will see the same or even books for that matter not just movies mm. you will see the same phenomenon play out that that's what i feel uh, but also like you said right it one obviously it's a very mature movie it deals with very mature themes there are many different movies in that movie mm-hmm. like if you recall there's this one montage where they're going from place to place because they're having to jump locations they're being uh, pursued by i forgot those guys who pursue them i forgot the term snatchers uh, snatchers they they pursued by snatchers so they're going from place to place it's just a montage of them walking they're, they're walking across this empty trailer park this erstwhile trailer park and i just got apocalypse like post apocalypse movie vibes from that scene i was like mm-hmm. wow i never expected to feel this way in a harry potter movie mm-hmm. and uh, like why I, for you like for you uh, prisoner of azkaban is your favorite movie for me it's it's goblet of fire not because it's the best movie by no means it is it's mm-hmm. probably the weakest of the movie that or maybe order of the phoenix it's just yeah. that i love the book so much the mm-hmm. book is so good that love kind of spills over for the movie mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i uh, for me i i compare it with the goblet of fire there's a lot happening again there's a lot less happening narratively in in deathly hallows because they've kind of wanted to save the best parts for the last movie and go out with a bang sort of thing mm-hmm. but with what they've got whatever sparse the uh, content they've got to work with i think the the treatment of it is amazing mm-hmm. so, i like liked it when i saw it um i think we saw it together right part yeah. one part one saw it together part two we did but that was the second viewing for me mm. um i don't know how to say this okay you know i have a theory about the books uh, in hindsight the thing is with harry potter it's like every time you read them especially because we sort of grew up almost contemporaneously with harry uh, you know for us even the standards matched with the whatever age harry was uh, but with hindsight having read them again and now i look at them now i have a particular theory about for me which explains how i feel about the books um is that the fifth after voldemort returns in the fourth i mean god bless the first five we just say that mm. god bless the first four unambiguously mm. and uh, it's like rohit said fourth used to be my favorite book by far for a very long time the subplots the spew the the the, mm-hmm. the everything i mean it had so much color to it you know yeah. which prisoner was the one i think is a far maybe a more technically accomplished book mm-hmm. but fourth had so much color you just dive into the universe uh, but after fourth when voldemort comes back when there's a death i think fifth takes a very very genuine dark angsty tone mm-hmm. and it's irrevocably dark Mm. Huh. I mean the darkness in fifth just doesn't stem from you know um the fact that there's oh deaths and killing but from Harry himself now having to cope with there's so many themes in it that are not on your surface dark but still everything changes up until the fourth book they're dealing with friends they're dealing with the, the themes that you're dealing with are more lighthearted are more related to childhood in the fifth this serious and his racist family background the fact mm. that he's an unwanted child for his mother this uh, creature uh, you know a completely despicable character but who you are made to wonder whether he deserves more love is he not the elf there is a <laughs> people like mundane this fletcher who are 
you know, it's easy to hate an evil person, but Mandangas Fletcher represents, I think for me, something a little more disturbing, the sort of characters who are so gaya guzara, as they say in Hindi, mm-hmm. that, you know, they're not positively evil, they're just not positively anything. They're going to get mm-hmm. shouted on and beat. Uh, it, it deals with Harry's own sort of frustrations, a very clear sign of puberty hitting in many ways, just the anger that he holds. Uh, uh, there's the, there's also a really nice moment where uh, I think uh, uh, the, his cousin, I, damn it, how can I forget these names? Uh, Dudley. Dudley. Dudley tells him, I don't think you're a waste, right? Yeah, and yeah. That is such an understated, but for me, a powerful moment in that relationship that where those, the initial childhood whites and blacks are rapidly being thrown away and the grays are coming in. Uh, I don't think five is a feel good book at all in many ways. The, I mean, there's the overt stuff people have seen death can see. And I remember when it came out, there was actually quite a bit. I did not particularly enjoy it. The more I've read it, and especially now, I respect that book a lot. When I read it, it wasn't what I was expecting because we had come to expect a certain thing out of Harry Potter, a certain uh, a certain set of what would you say feelings associated, and suddenly mm. this was making you feel different things. You felt uncomfortable, which maybe was the point. But I remember that I was not the only one. There was actually a fair amount of backlash uh, against the book, saying that oh, it's not. People, a lot of people talked about how it was darker, but a lot of people, for a lot of people, it was like we were disappointed. It wasn't what we thought. Mm. For me, it's very jarring when in the sixth, it suddenly goes back to Quidditch, suddenly goes back to dating, suddenly goes back to the Hogwarts life. And I think in many ways that might have been a reaction to the criticism that the fifth received. Because in mm. fifth, even Hogwarts itself is drenched of a lot of its color. Yeah. That, mm. For me, the universe of the fifth makes perfect sense given what happened in fourth. Hmm. sixth just suddenly wants to take it back to flashback land in many ways and what it looks like is happening in sixth and seventh is on the one hand uh, Rowling has a lot of themes that she wants to deal with but yeah. somehow she's coloring them with a lot of maybe what the readers might expect or whatever it was for me I enjoy the sixth and seventh certainly but they never it never felt the way the, the way the first five feel to me sixth and seventh never did some of that spills over into the movies. I I don't think the fifth movie achieved anything of, of the sort that the book did, which is ironic because when the movie came out, I liked the movie a lot more than the book. Um, so seventh part one, does it deal with stuff? Yeah, it does. I don't disagree with that. Um, but I would just say that on a filmmaking level, to me, it is closer to a Hunger Games. Um, hmm. Whereas the third wow. movie on a sheer uh, filmmaking uh, level, The Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, is so uh, gorgeous. I can, I can, and I have watched Prisoner of Azkaban repeatedly. I can still watch it anytime at the drop of a hat. It's there, along with Jurassic Park. It's the two movies that I can think of right now. Maybe there might be uh, a couple of others, but for me, Jurassic Park, Prisoner of Azkaban are two movies I can watch anytime in any mood and feel better about the world and not uh, be bored. And not just not be bored is a you know, a gross exaggeration. Mm -hmm. I would love to watch it, every single frame of it. For me, seven part one and David Yates is far more functional. It doesn't... Very functional. Yeah, it doesn't come anywhere near that. There's the green hints and the apocalyptic sets and everything, fine. But, I mean, for me, the third is a splendor. For me, the third is the Empire Strikes Back of Harry Potter. (laughs) So, you know... I feel... I feel part... And with regard to the books, I really resent the character assassination of Dumbledore. There was it served no purpose to the narrative. Like you could have whatever narr- the narrative, the way it had to move forward with the whole 
connection of uh, grindelwald and your deathly hallows and the elder wand could have mm. you could have done that without making dumbledore out to be an asshole which i don't know why she did that i mean was it to subvert expectations that hated phrase that i think the point is more that not everyone worships dumbledore the same way that harry does because we have only seen dumbledore through harry's eyes right mm. so there is certainly i respect that about rowling that she's trying to bring in the humanity to everything which means showing us the human side of evil but also showing us the human side of the what seems to be a godly good so <laughs> i mean that's my reading of it but yeah if i have to add anything to this it's just that i feel there's this was one of the few films barring four had had like early stage pub- i mean had kind of the most pubescent aspect of um of the entire series without it being very forced i think six having watched it recently suffers from it they, they, it's too much as in like it's almost an excess where they try to force down the whole or oh, we're in love and the, and the whole love portion it doesn't work the only like the only redeeming aspect of the sixth movie is that uh, um jim broadbent's slagon is is delightful especially yeah. his his scene with where he talks about where he gives them gives them the memory and hagrid's hut yeah is is so beautiful and i feel they couldn't have cast the one thing i will always say this every time we talk about the potter films Casting. you could not have cast that film better everyone yeah. in that movie is doing exactly what is expected and more uh, but with regards to the seventh i just feel there are more human moments in each of in 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 that uh, in the in the in the film than there is in most of the others specifically where things are shitty ron is gone hey that rhymed um and it's just harry and uh, harry and hermione in a tent and then he turns the radio on and they just dance it has no bearing on the story whatsoever it's just a moment where the film pauses and he tries to break it's it's a it's a tense situation he holds her hand and then he slowly like he starts to tickle and then it's so beautiful so poignant and though that's kind of what attracted me more to the uh, to the story as well i mean it's just that as much of a shit show there in i feel like there are moments in the film where i'm like oh that that's a genuinely nice moment they go to visit his grave in the uh, their parents grave it's such a it, it's such a nice moment in the books when he ends up at godric's hollow and they captured most of it in the movie as well when they they take a break by this time the the actors have also matured so they're delivering great performances as well also can we talk about the, in terms of like showcasing a horror aspect to harry potter there have been several times where the, the batilda backshot scene yeah the batilda backshot scene is terrifying it's terrifying yes yeah because i have pictured it in a certain way. even when i read the book it, it scared me but it far surpassed expectations uh, in the adaptation because they follow her in and then hermione discovers while he's yeah. in the room with her there is a separate shot entirely on hermione discovering a closet with the real batilda and blood everywhere so which they don't show but the but the but the blood uh, but the marks of blood uh, stains of blood she follows of, uh, flies right she follows yeah, the she marks of flies stones. yeah yeah and then it and then uh, and then it like the way nagini pops out of batilda which is i mean the fantastic beast movie uh, movies ruin that legend because making nagini this uh, this kind of tragic character is not really what i wanted from uh from that series but anyway i'm i'm digressing but i'm just i just like to say that there are plenty of things about that movie i i like i still having watched it again i i still feel there is merit to that argument which is why it is one of my favorite part of films it may not be as good as askaban but it's still pretty damn good okay fine so coming to my last 
or and probably most contentious opinion okay i'm not going to say lotr the lotr movies are bad by by no measure are they bad don't you fucking dare <laughs> they're not as good as people make it out to be i mean 11 oscars like greatest trilogy of all time some of the best movies of all time i'm like yeah okay i mean they're good okay so before you guys like you know find my address and come and beat me up <laughs> let me preface by saying they're they're a good set of movies no contesting that they're a technological pioneer i would say akin to a citizen kane really pushed uh animation obviously practical effects also the whole force perspective thing was a stroke of genius uh so the the movies done things which hitherto were never done before so kudos to them for that my only point is like we all have one life to live right like there's a finite amount of time you're on this earth and like holy shit do these movies just go on and on and on and like firstly what sort of cocaine binge was uh, jera tolkien on to write that like humongous tome which you know it serves better as a bludgeoning weapon than than as a work of literature okay it's, okay it's, okay let's calm down here <laughs> 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 so willing to so, give a pass to say few more of the movies but despite cutting out a fair bit of uh, fair bit out of the books like you know thank god for you no know, tom bombardil Uh, oh god way too much <laughs> that's still way too much yeah, i mean it would have been it might have been the one thing they might have ruined i mean as of now it's perfect so mm. i don't know I'm like if they altered the matter would it why why oh god right okay okay so so despite cutting out a fair bit out of the books there's still way too much happening uh, i wouldn't say anything is wrong this is just so much happening right narratively uh, and that again I, i don't fault peter jackson for it it's it's more a function of the material that's being ad- adapted because it's such a long story there's so many uh, side quests for lack of a better term and there's this there's so many pieces to the narrative and he's tr- i'm sure he's tried and look at said he's like clenching his fist <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> it's just an eraser it's just give me give me 2 minutes and then then you can yeah, yeah, you can yeah. dig into me so there's there's a uh, there's so much happening in the and and you know it's it's treatment is great all of that is great this there's some bits of the narrative which really baffle me like in in the two dars There's Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli who pursue Merry and Pippin to save them from the Orcs. Like, why? Fuck them, dude! Like, all they do is have multiple breakfasts. They sing excessively, and they just annoy. Like, fuck Merry and Pippin. Why do you? Why? So Aragorn is king of Gondor. Legolas is the greatest archer in in the canon. You do better things with your time. The the source material itself. I I don't like that entire arc of them going to save Merry and Pippin. Like, if personally, if I was like, you know, they they dug their grave, whatever. Let's let's move on. and uh, the other bit that really baffles me in return of the king is at the end when even realizes aragorn is not going to uh, you know he already has his heart set on um, somebody else at the end you just see eowyn uh, and faramir hook up like how did that happen like uh, what 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 do they have in common what is the common ground that they bonded upon like that that, that doesn't have any explanation right hmm. and uh, so that that's one more thing that that bugs me the last bit that i want to end with that really bugs me is the number of endings that are there in return of the king especially in the director's cut you went like one after the other <laughs> yeah like the yeah. first the first uh, end, ending scene i'm just like oh awesome like you know it's all after all of that hardship it's it, it's it's all ending nicely i'm so happy 
the second third reunion i'm just like okay yeah nice by the fifth one i just feel like taking my chappal and like you know beating frodo to death just to you know bring have a break in this whole saccharine feeling like guys enough i get it like just end it already so yeah that's that's just my piece i'm i'm open to your uh, brick bats <laughs> my point no, no, so, uh, so uh, I, i think i'll make my at, point very both of you are just... <laughs> i'll make my point very quickly my point is yeah. whatever i say sid will say better so sid stick it <laughs> so uh, i mean i'm going to try very hard not to bring the nerd boy into this because i am a huge huge tolkien fan tolkien means a lot to me uh, at a lot of levels you know it's not just that i like the movies um see okay i'll give you one point the endings yeah i mean he had such a hard time letting go that he ended the movie you know whatever i think six times in the return yeah. of the king and then he made three yeah. more movies just to end the return of the king <laughs> which which, which so no purpose at all so yeah, I'll, i'll give you that you know considering how much of peter jackson's life went into it i'm i'm like okay you know whatever i i get that um see i mean there is a again if i was to go nerd boy on this i would say there's a perfectly logical explanation for all the doubts you've raised within the context of the story this that so they go to chase mary pippin because you know aragorn is at a loss his initial mission has failed and they actually have a discussion regarding all of that but i would instead of trying to just go there with serves no purpose um uh l- let me just say let me actually point out some of the things that you missed uh gandalf coming back to life something most people have a lot of problem with like what well, what is this gandalf in finite lives for no reason uh, mm. you know or gandalf also the white yeah. also that um <laughs> the the ghost army just coming and finishing everything oh, yeah. off uh, also that <laughs> the the, the so, eagles so, yes uh, no eagles. i'm not there is enough explanation as to why they could not just fly oh, the eagles i'm see, not going to bring that point up. There's enough explanation to all of those points. So if you are going to raise, you might as well raise these points as well, right? Why not? <laughs> uh, well, I'll just uh, I'll just say this. Okay, first of all, the question of why did Tolkien have to write such long books? I mean, I, I assume that was a joke because this was yeah, yeah, Tolkien's life work. Um, no, my point is also in the context that these are not just extraordinary long single books. Tolkien. uh pretty much spent his entire life building this universe and various aspects of it um tolkien uh, was an interesting was, point that uh, i i don't know if you i'm, I'm sure you must be aware uh, the whole idea yeah. he built the elotia story and universe was to give context to the language that he wanted to invent he was he a did. linguist first it is so fascinating a, to me i was exactly going to say that that he was a linguist and to him the idea of elotia which for me only adds to like my amazement at it Uh, it is that it wasn't about a story he's trying to tell it was in his own right. he's very very viciously not viciously very vociferously uh denied that it is a metaphor for anything because a lot of people try to mm. interpret it as a metaphor for world war 2 or whatever to him it was he was a linguist in love with languages and yeah. to him the elven, every language represents something about the people who speak it its evolution its background its so to him it was like he came up with the language and then he kept imagining what could be the what kind of traits characters values mm. what would be the grand story of the sort of people who would have a language like this you know mm. which is for me something even real linguists if they wrote books about that and try to explore society in that way would be fascinating but he went ahead and created his own universe um 
but that explains a little bit about why they chase Mary and Pippin and this and that indirectly because the Elotial universe ultimately is not it is not similar to Harry Potter in the sense that the specifics of powers and roles don't really have that much meaning. People say that, oh, what does Gandalf actually do? It's not that he has some spells that he's mastered or he uses. These are all very large. Um, I mean, he's the the Elutia works not at the narrative level, but rather at one level above that, which is the sort of archetypes. Uh, you know, which is a criticism that gets leveled at it that oh it's a racist uh, somehow intrinsically because people except for the humans the other races are very highly defined by the entire race is more or less just orcs especially are problematic yeah the orcs are all evil the dwarves are all greedy humans are all power hungry the elves are all noble sort of it's not entirely accurate if you actually read it it's that's no, yeah. again the movie you you cannot explore these nuances. Right, you know? right, of course. So, so they don't but, talk about, uh, um, I mean, just, just jumping on that one point about how yeah. all races are like being painted with, with a single brush. If you read the books, mm-hmm. I mean, the Merkwood Elves are the ones that uh, are, are, have known to be problematic, right? That's what, that's ultimately what Bilbo encounters um, in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in The Hobbit. So I, I don't know that that argument about how I mean adding to your point about how they're all painted with the same brush doesn't right. really hold whole ground. Right, right. But even regardless of species, the point is that it's more of a way for him to explore, for example, the fact that the elves are immortal, mm. uh, so they are hesitant to act, which is a major theme mm. in these books. They, for the elf, it is, and secondly, they're extremely intellectual. You can say or very wise characters, but. The books are very clear in portraying the fact that their wisdom is not does not make them an absolute good. Rather, it is a particular characteristic that makes them very tolerant of evil in the world. For example, that elves have a tendency to let things be because they stand to lose a lot if they jump into the battle. That's a theme that gets even explored even more in depth with Treebeard and the Ents who have yeah. been there since the beginning of time. And you know, so that in a way is also a question of why should somebody who is you know above the fray descent to it to jump in and fight the battle somebody who's a huge huge uh lotr fan is uh who's our man the john stewart's protege the, the late night oh show. yeah yeah steven colbert steven colbert and colbert has this wonderful google talk where he was at the interview he talks to he's talking to eric schmidt and uh that time stewart and colbert and all this was during the bush presidency they had organized a protest and they got a lot of flack from fox and the right-wing media about wanting to seize power and this and that. So he talks about, for example, how he, there is this, um, they discuss what, see the ring ultimately, it's not a question of whether the ring itself, what does it do? See, again, this is something that if you're coming from a, a Harry Potter perspective or just uh, just approaching this as a fantasy and not as mythology, you'd be like, oh, it makes you invisible, so what? You can have, a lot of people do have all these problems. It's not the point. The ring is just a representation of power itself. It mm. can be whatever you want it to be. Power corrupts. You know, you can say mm. that maybe is at a very basic core is the whole theme behind it. That nobody can hold a ring, whether whatever reason they think they're holding it for. They every person who is tempted to wield the ring is tempted to wield power thinking they'll use it for good. And all of them get corrupted because that is the inherent nature of power itself. Mm. That is where the discussions of the ring branch out into uh, discussions of uh, balance in the world, environmentalism, 
without actually meaning to be any of those of what heroism really means of what doing the right thing can really mean and ultimately i think tolkien talked about this fact how he sees sam as the hero of it all because yeah. to him which is something that gets repeated a lot heroism is not the most intelligent people nor the most powerful people uh the discussions at the council of elrond you know who could have foreseen that an elf would that the humble hobbits would rise from their farms and their huts and shake the worlds of the mighty or mm-hmm. if they are wise why should they have ever claimed to foresee that in the first place you know or when they're trying to get them to take an oath that they will destroy the ring and elrond says that there is no point getting people to take an oath when they don't really understand what they're getting into and somebody else says you know uh, uh, an oath can harden a weak heart but or or it can strengthen a weak heart and somebody else says it could also break a strong one because when you are under oath there's lot of throwaway these are just throwaway lines this is i mean off the top of my head what i can think of mm. um but if you talk of it adapting into the movie the movie does you say it's too long i get that to an extent but it's long because it takes its pauses it is not about this happens then that happens and that happens mm-hmm. for me the the for me the two towers is my favorite of the lot mm-hmm. yeah. um, some of the pieces i would say you know lend the endings but the two towers when theoden breaks out from under that spell mm-hmm. uh, you know and in the book it's actually not a literal spell in the movie they sort of make it look like a literal spell in the mm. book it is more like a very what would you say nihilistic advice that he constantly receives wormtong is an extremely clever man who has brought the skin under to a, a point where that guy has no energy left because wormtong's advice for everything is what's the point mm. everything is screwed anyway so that is how it plays out in the book in the movie they sort of made it like a literal so spell more physical manifestation it's like a more physical he breaks out from it he realizes his son is dead and then there is just that one scene where there's flowers blooming and then they focus on the flower scene and they cut to theoden or when the battle is happening and theoden loses his nerve again and he's like where are now the horse and the rider where mm. is the horn that was blowing mm. so the movie takes its time with the poetry of it all you know you may or may not buy into it but a lot of it is there um the, i have issues with the movie arvin is not a character in the movie yeah. at all so there's this love story that comes out of nowhere total out of oh i didn't know that she's not in the she's not she i mean she's there she's in the appendix she shows the cast and she marries aragorn and that's basically it oh, and everything yeah. that they show arvin doing is often um, I mean, then why shoehorn her in the movie, anyways? Because all she did That's was a, just pine. She just show up on scene like, oh, and go. Wait, I mean, and, I, and, I and, and there is that who is the who is the rider that takes him to uh, Rivendell? It's not it's not Arwen. It's someone else in the book. Uh, Glorfindel. Glorfindel. What nerd? Arwen has a brother who acts, but in the no, so Peter Jackson shoehorned a romance into it. He shoehorned a mm. comedy track by turning Gimli into a dumbass. Gimli is yeah. not a dumbass in the book. Okay, in the in the movie, he's out and out a comedy relief or a comic relief. The so, only thing I am grateful for, uh, especially like in terms of books, and obviously Tom Bombadil was 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 a great exception. I didn't need that in the in the in the movie. I played the game. There's a great Fellowship of the Ring game based entirely on the book. I mean, and there's a whole section, but that that if you want the experience, that's where to go. But um, yeah, there's another thing. So, so the Balrog sequence in Fellowship of the Ring. So, uh, Sid's favorite mm-hmm. film is um, is the Two Towers. For me, it's the Fellowship of the Ring because uh, I just feel, in terms of a film, in terms of dynamics, in terms of story, in terms of spectacle, you know, when you remember some, you watch something for the first time and it sticks with you. 
the memory of watching Fellowship of the Ring for the first time because I had never seen anything like that in my life, and to this day, I have not mm. seen uh, a film handle that uh, a film handle so many themes on so well. Two Towers was I'll tell you exactly what I was feeling at the end of the film. I was feeling sheer terror when Hemsley Hemsley kicks off. And I have yet to Hemsley, see. It. By the way, hands down, one of the greatest battle films ever. See, battle sequences. Like, no, ever battle sequences. Yeah, it, yeah. No contest. You know, so it begins. The the whole yeah, so it yeah, begins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the two towers in theater without context, without knowing what LOTR is when yeah. the started. And from and even there, I remember the so it begins and you and know even, like wow. And even the whole like you see you see them winning, right? You see you you see mm-hmm. uh, Rohan winning. And then, hmm. uh, obviously, uh, Wormtang has given them has given Saruman the uh, Hemsley's one weak point, and hmm. uh, and when the guy starts running with uh, they they load up bombs hmm. near the sewers and he starts running and Aragorn spots him and he says Legolas bring him down and you see Legolas who's not missed a shot throughout. Uh, the movie and he starts making it and it builds up it builds up and he finally gets him but he gets him at a point where that where where the bomber is He's just close enough close enough he dives into the sewer and then the wall blows up and that's when you're just like shit even just before like even before so it begins when the orcs all gather it's terrifying especially with their with their rallying cry i have yet to see battles even jackson himself has been unable to top it he tries with um uh with pelena fields 60 Pelinor fps hobbit or 60 battle of pelena fields pelena fields hobbit we can't talk about the hobbit yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can Pel- talk about it uh, parts of but, it but yeah my separate episode i mean, right? I, not my five minutes yeah. <laughs> but anyway so pelena fields i feel is 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 more cinematic but not does not have that um it has that it doesn't have that special something which henry doesn't wants. have the high stakes of yeah. the high stakes of henry but uh, mm-hmm. faramir's suicide run to asgiliath is also beautiful especially with with pippin singing yeah with pippin singing oh, can we talk oh, about it before, before oh, oh. Miss and then yeah, when the when the ox when the ox let let's it have his moment yeah. <laughs> So when the ox fire, it cuts to Denethor eating and like tomato uh, pulps. Oh yeah. So that's what. And then they fling the uh, the heads of heads of the riders over over uh, Minas Tirith yeah. walls, right? So the Return of the King inter is pure spectacle. I think it's kind of like a, a tying up the entire series in a knot. But in terms mm. of Fellowship of the Ring, six knots. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> six knots. Fellowship of the Ring has uh, I there isn't a single piece of cinematic music that has that gets me every time I listen to it, as does the, uh, like the uh, like the breaking of the fellowship where he where Frodo's having the moment, Frodo's having the moment on uh, on the water and he says uh, and then he realizes he has to go to Mordor alone and he leaves and then Sam follows him and it's it's so beautiful and when like you don't. You realize there are three parts. And Sean is doing what he does best. Yeah, dying. Uh, but <laughs> it's just there. There is there is so much about that about the, those movies that I adore. Uh, yes, the ending of Return of the King, and I have the extended cut, so I've on DVD. I own physical copies. So <laughs> uh, the the director's cut is four and a half hours long, and I have watched it in one sitting. But obviously, when I had a lot more time, I can't can't do that anymore. Um, but I, I like i like i know you have like, you and i have had this conversation for years at this point cuz 
uh, when we first met in school and we were in college and we were discussing issues about, uh, I mean, we were discussing LOTR. You've not liked it for a very long time. This isn't something you woke up and decided I'm going to no, like it. LOTR. I don't dislike it. I don't love it. So all of the points you both made, I have nothing mm. to disagree with. I agree with mm. all of them. It, I mean, nothing you can say can still address my grouse with it, which is that it's too long, which is yeah, my problem. It's my problem. Love. That's what it's my problem. Love something. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the basic point. But yeah, and I agree with all. It's a great work of art. Landmark. And I, and I think that's, that's kind that's of a good way to end. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, us agreeing to disagree on certain things because, I mean, we all look look at these films or these or subject matters in, in uh, varying degrees. Like there are things that attract us to us which the other person is looking at from a completely different lens. And I guess that's always going to be the case when it comes to takes like these. So, which is why it seems like a rather uh, interesting note to end this episode on. But said thanks so much for joining us. I think your presence has made Are this episode sound so much more what sophisticated than our episodes otherwise completely, are. <laughs> completely my pleasure. I mean, this has been more fun and than I've had in like yours. <laughs> we'll definitely do this uh, on a different topic another time. Anyway, uh, that should be that. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll see you on the next one. Everyone take care. See you guys. Shall we see you guys. So they opened their big mouths and out came talk, talk, talk.